see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom. Both the white nationalists and the activists left Friday night thinking, okay, they're completely emboldened, the white nationalists are completely mm-hmm. emboldened. Tomorrow is going to be even worse than we expected. And someone's going to get On this episode tomorrow. of Playtime, as my wife makes her excellent chili in the background, my conversation with Nora Noose about the 2017 riots in Charlottesville, Virginia, and her new book, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy. And Dan Davies from Renegade Press about the new book, Music on the Bones, based on true events and the smuggling of rock and roll on x-rays into the Soviet Union in 1969. And we'll hear music inspired by the book from the Voices own Katie Kadan and Chris Weaver. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. The colors of the rainbow So pretty in the sky so on their faces of people going by I see friends shaking hands saying how do you do they're really saying I love you In the new book, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy, there is a notable absence of narrative editorialization, a rare quality in contemporary journalism. The words of witnesses, clergy, political leaders, witnesses, and survivors suffice in telling the full story. There is, in my opinion, no other side. The polemic rhetoric of one side stands on its own and fully reveals that position, that in itself leaves no question of whether there were, as the president at the time, Donald Trump, said, quote, good people, that there were good people on both sides, unquote. There is no need to have the Unite the Right coalition of hate and neo-Nazi groups defend their position in much the same way we don't include cruel and perverse data gleaned from medical experiments inflicted on innocent civilians by the Japanese in the Second World War or by Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele in modern conversations about medicine and healthcare, or race for that matter. Nora Noose is an Emmy-nominated journalist and author. News Field produced Anderson Cooper's CNN coverage of the 2017 white supremacist riot in Charlottesville, Virginia. Before joining CNN, she worked as a local news reporter and fill-in anchor for the CNN affiliate in Charlottesville. She knows this community. Nora has also co-authored Mohammed Najem, War Reporter, How One Boy Put the Spotlight on Syria. Her latest book is 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy, comprehensive, powerful, and compelling, just scratches the surface. If only the Warren Commission, by the way, uh, had been this thorough and exhaustive and dramatic. <laughs> uh, her website is noranoose.com. After all that, Nora, I'm afraid we're out of time. <laughs> 
It is <laughs> so, so wonderful. Much. It is so wonderful to have you here. And and welcome to Chicago Rights, by the way. Thank you very much. I was just in Chicago myself for a wedding, so feels oh, fantastic. Fantastic. We uh, we I hope we hope we kept a little bit of nice weather for you. Oh yeah. Nice, nice. And you have a great space there. It's uh, it's it's my oasis and and my cat over That's my amazing. shoulder here. <laughs> a little wow. bit of an art studio and and living room all together. What a wonderful book and amazing. I I come from an activist background. I was really oh, wow. active in uh, in Occupy Chicago here mm. uh, for for a number of years, and uh, went to Bosnia uh, as, wow. a, as a witness, relief work uh, for Rwanda. This book really resonated strongly with me. It, mm. it, it was it's an amazing it's an amazing piece. Very very proud. Thank you um, so much. Having gone over this book three or four times, uh, this should take only six or seven hours. Um, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> no, no, no. um no. the the video just for for my reference the video is not going to be used anywhere right it's absolutely just not no this is audio only Great. but if bigfoot walks behind you uh through the room there i'm posting it but other than that Great. We're good. Yeah. It gets, Amazing. It gets deleted. It's just for our back and forth, which I've 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 heard and, and read some some things that that's that's a critical component in, in I agree. conversation. Yeah. So and it, it, it's an astounding project. Uh, I was attempting to enunciate better the strategy behind writing the book or writing a book like this. But one of the voices in 24 Hours in Charlottesville, Emily Gorchensky, uh, writes her role this way. And so with that, I was like, well, what's my place? I'm not going to go up and fist fight a Nazi because I'll get my ass kicked. I'm not as good a fighter as I am in real life as I am in my head. And so I realized that the weapons I had were my words, which I think beautifully mm. encapsulates and uh, encapsulates the, the work. Thank you. I, I haven't thought of it in that quote in that way before, but I think that's true. I, I appreciate that. It's really the strength behind behind this book are are the words of, uh, of, of the participants and the story and the story of this this historic resonance that's critically important right? Absolutely. And I think actually using those voices and telling the story and the words of people who were on the street that day, that weekend, mm -hmm. that summer really gives it a new perspective and a, and a new power. So give us a little bit of background for anyone who might have been on Mars in, for the last six years uh, that that don't know about this story. And there I thought I knew quite a bit about this story going in. There was so much here and, and we'll we'll touch upon that in in a bit that that I didn't even know but but give us a little bit of background about uh the story in Charlottesville sure so on August 12th 2017 we had the largest white nationalist gathering in modern history in mm -hmm. Charlottesville Virginia and it saw hundreds if not uh, over a thousand there's d differing estimates of uh, depending on what you want to call them, white nationalists, white supremacists, neo-Nazis. At the time, we were calling them the alt-right, although that is kind of a misnomer, um, or or at least something that obfuscates the level of violence and hate. Mm -hmm. um, in any respect, these people gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, which in part was chosen because there was an effort to remove Confederate statues in town. But there's other racist history in Charlottesville and reasons we can get into for choosing that town. Um, and... 
the local activist community knew this was going to happen and warned leaders at various levels, uh, state, local, the University of Virginia, which is based in Charlottesville, and the riot, which you know originally was supposed to be a rally for the, the alt-right, went ahead. And what most people will remember as the kind of enduring images was actually Friday night, the night before, um, which was the torch march uh, mm-hmm. on UVA's lawn or campus. And then the street brawl the next morning that culminated in the car attack that killed Heather Heyer, one of the counter protesters. And then a few days later was what you alluded to in, th- in the introduction, President Trump's, uh, there, you know, there were good people on both sides and kind of there was violence on both sides uh, argument. What drove the decision to render the book as as an oral history rather than a narrative? Because both would have been equally compelling. I, I just happen to think that the oral history and, and especially the way you rendered it really comes comes across incredibly powerful. I think in a way... I experienced the events of that day yeah. as an oral history. And and what, yeah. what I mean by that is that so I, I was in Charlottesville reporting all summer. We called it the summer of hate. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an earlier KKK march that summer. Um, there had been all this work and I had been really preparing myself to be there in the streets on mm-hmm. August 12th. And then I got my dream job offer from CNN in New York, where my family is. And so Mm -hmm. I ended up leaving a few weeks before August 12th and then went back into town on the 12th, mostly to get the rest of my belongings out of my apartment. My dad and I were driving down I-95 from New York when everything started happening. And so Mm -hmm. I was on the phone with friends for that entire hours long drive, mm-hmm. listening to CNN, but only listening to it, mm-hmm. um, texting with people trying to figure out what was happening. And by the time I got there, it was just after Heather had been killed. Uh-huh. Um, and I ended up spending the next week there in town. But I just had so many sources and friends that I knew so many of the leaders in town. And, you know, as a local reporter, I covered mm-hmm. local crime and local politics. So this mm-hmm. is exactly my wheelhouse. And my very first thought of doing an oral history on this was only a few days afterward. And I actually pitched an article to CNN Mm -hmm. to do a short oral history article about the experiences on August 12th, especially in the local media and how they were responding. And And there are are advantages and disadvantages to to both, both the narrative telling of the story and and the oral history telling. Sure. Of, of the story I can see a lot of a lot of potential traps in um difficulties in in telling the fullest possible oral, oral history that um that that you you could otherwise do kind of seamlessly with a uh with a narrative history right mm-hmm I think a lot of it is making sure that you have enough of the puzzle pieces. And there were definitely parts toward the end of the project where I realized I needed certain things that I knew were factual, but I Mm -hmm. needed another source to, to report them essentially. It can't have been easy. There's this building tension and drama throughout, throughout the book. And that's rather difficult to do when you're using other people's 
uh, words verbatim, right? Yeah, I had a bit of a strategy for that, uh, a kind of a guiding principle, which mm -hmm. was to only include quotes from people in that that they and thoughts from folks. I'm not sure exactly how to how to say this. It makes sense in my head, but with information that they knew at that moment. So there's a lot of things in hindsight that, you know, someone can tell the story and say, I was walking down fourth street. And of course, now we know that the car was coming, but at the time I didn't realize and then right. the car hit us, et cetera. And I wouldn't include that. I would only include, well, we were walking down and we heard this revving, but we didn't know what it was mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. And so the, the process to putting this together was not letting hindsight inform form i mean of course hindsight does inform what we know yeah, yeah. but but in the quotes themselves not giving it away kind of and, uh -huh. and trying to keep trying to stay very much in the moment we're gonna, we're gonna come back to that uh that strategy in a little bit because i think that is is really uh the exceptional power behind this book but you offer a bit of history mm. um like the controversy over uh uh, over Jefferson's contemporary ambiguity about slavery uh, without editorializing. And, and you do that throughout the book. You lay out, you lay out these facts. At the, be at the beginning, though, you, you sort of give us this narrative history of, of the town without, without editorializing. Mm -hmm. was, was, that, was that difficult? Was that conscious? Was that, how did you decide on I'm not taking a position over something that quite naturally desires an opinion. Mm. Well, I could have written a whole different book that was yeah, a yeah. memoir of my time as a young reporter with not a lot of experience trying to navigate covering this national yeah. news story, because that's a whole other aspect of it. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing personally. And I think I have a lot of regrets still about how I covered it at the time, which we can talk about. But the point of this project was not to make it about me. Mm -hmm. And the point of the project was not to be like, here's what I think about this, but mm -hmm. was to amplify the voices of people in the community. Yeah. And yeah. my experience of what Charlottesville is, the town, not not the event, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but, but the place is, you know, I was living there as a Northern transplant, as a scholarship student, but, but a merit scholarship student, um, as someone who had economic resources and financial resources, as someone who is white as someone who mm -hmm. uh, had all of the ability to, you know, go to the fun restaurants in Charlottesville and yeah. and, uh, and go to the best university there. Yeah. Um, that is very different than the experience of a lot of people who live in Charlottesville, have lived there for generations, and then who were in the streets actually defending our city. And, and getting them to talk about these traumatic memories. How did you begin building, first of all, relationships with with the the many people that uh, the many voices that are in this book and gain the trust of those involved and affected by the, by the event, especially as as you said, an outsider, particularly with public sentiments about journalism and news media and and race. How how did you build those relationships? Yeah, well, I think part of it was communicating from the very beginning that this was the goal of my project. That okay. that 
I was able to say from the very beginning, yeah. your words will be reprinted how you say them without editorializing from me. And it will be presented with, for the most part, without commentary. I mean, there mm -hmm, are parts mm -hmm. where I have to string together the narrative, but um, I think that was one part of it is voices being allowed to actually tell their own story. A lot of people I actually already knew from my time in Charlottesville, it's a small town. And so I definitely was able to use some of my same sources as always, or have people vouch for me. But then finally, I was actually surprised by how many people I tracked down. And it was often the people were, that were a little bit harder to track down mm -hmm. who I was, I would be nervous saying, you know, I, I know you were hit by the car and mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. are suffering. And would you ever be interested in speaking about that? Mm -hmm. And I was surprised by how many people said, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for someone to ask me. I've any, been waiting for years. Any pertinent or, or important voices or witnesses uh, that just wouldn't talk to you? The chief of police yeah. and the city manager. Really? Both, yes. Both of wow. whom, um, at least one of them has signed an NDA for very uh -huh. much money. And both of whom have left the, the government in Charlottesville. Uh, we're we're going to come back to them in in a bit because you're you're very critical about uh, about the public safety response to the, to all this, and I I, I want to touch on that in more detail in in a bit. There are a multitude of because we're we're also talking to uh, to to writers out there who who may uh, who may undertake a project like this. There are a multitude of resources online. Uh, there's an oral history association, oralhistory.org. Oralhistory.org gives four elements. And I wanted to ask you how you put these into practice. The first mm. one is preparation. But as far as the preparation is concerned, they they recommend that if you don't have experience doing this, uh, gathering and compiling and and, and rendering uh, a, a cohesive oral history that you have that you have help or advice mm, or you seek mm -hmm. somebody with, who's who's done it in, in the past. Did you receive any help at all I in did. this project? I did. I, I received some incredible help from a professional oral historian named Noor Alzamami, mm -hmm. who was trained at Columbia in their Masters of Oral History program. And they provided a lot of insight into the project, not just on a process level of, mm -hmm. you know, here's how to make sure you record it and transcribe it and uh, things like that, but also just the larger ideas at play. Um, they are a person of color. They're someone with an activist background, um, someone who's experienced police brutality and police violence in their own life. Mm -hmm. um, and having that perspective was also incredibly helpful. They conducted some of the interviews in the book themselves. Um, but I think they also helped me understand the importance of respecting the tradition of oral history. Sure. This is this is a practice that is generations and generations and centuries old. Oral yeah. history is the oldest storytelling form that exists. Mm -hmm. This is an indigenous-based practice. Um, and so that's something to just be aware of. This is not just doing longer journalism-type interviews. But there, there's a the that journalist of journalistic aspect. So of course, and I yeah. and I do have this history of interviews and of interviewing people. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I think that's also why this came naturally to me and why mm -hmm. I chose this format. Um. But it's also important 
to be making choices affirmatively mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. preserve people's agency and nuance. There's mm-hmm. a, a good, I mean, this is a little bit going off track, but for example, there's a big conversation about how to ethically transcribe people's language Correct. because for example, white people or educated mm-hmm. white people are often transcribed with things spelled correctly, even if they use uh, abbreviations or drop the last letter of a word. Mm-hmm. That's very common. Whereas oh, often so people of color are transcribed more exactly. Phonetically. And yeah. Exactly. And this was a big controversy in the book, The Help, um, uh-huh, which, uh-huh. which is a novel, but it rendered all the white people's dialogue in proper English and all of the people of color's dialogue in essentially a pigeon. And so you don't want to do that. But at the same time, you do want to respect the AAVE of a lot of the black participants. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. transcribing is not even a neutral activity. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of questions like that to grapple with. I can, I can see that that a black person speaking in in a quote unquote black idiom could be perceived by another audience as being less intelligent or or uh, not as not as educated or not as cultured as as the white counterpart who's uh, who's transcribed in a more more anglicized I guess vernacular. Yeah, that, and the idea yeah. of what like proper grammar is, for example, yeah. it's not yes, that it's yeah. proper or not; it's that it's different vernaculars. Yeah. And yeah. African American English vernacular English AAVE is yeah. its own yeah. proper vernacular, but you have to respect yeah. it that way. Isn't isn't that a little bit solved by the the ahs and us that people kind of kind of inject into in, into their their normal language? I, I don't know. I mean, I think. There is a, I mean, even even transcribing, for example, like Southern English, yeah, versus like yeah. a Southern accent versus yeah. like a, a more, as my grandmother would say, a more Yankee accent. Um, <laughs> that, even that is different. Um, mm-hmm. So you just have to make decisions about how much you're correcting. Okay. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of like a good example, but like the word didn't yeah most people when we're speaking quickly and i've probably done it in this conversation eventually just kind of didn't like didn't, right didn't. right uh-huh. they didn't like d-i-n-t right, right right and or written mm-hmm. i i say this my, my mom gets in my case about this i always drop the t's in written and i'm just kind of like <laughs> oh well like like it's been written down like start using almost a d sound mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But none of that, I don't think we would transcribe as anything other than the proper spelling. But when you do get into proper, you know, American uh, English spelling, but as you start to get into folks that have even wider divergences in accents, yeah, and if you want to respect yeah. that and render them on the page accurately, um, you, you do have to make choices about when to transcribe things as they sound versus how they're meant to be maybe maybe just just a, a translation for uh for that for that broader audience right yeah and then mo- everyone uses ums and ahs like you mentioned yeah yeah and so for the most part i took those out 
for for the Uh most part i took out just kind of false starts and okay wordiness or if they kind of stumbled and i Mm -hmm. i disclosed Mm -hmm. that in the intro but then sometimes i left them in if it was like i asked a hard question and then they're trying to like um uh well um i mean and then like sometimes that informs the meeting so i mean it's all these are all tricky questions. Yeah, no, and and, and I get that. I, I I was part of a um I, I transcribed uh, an interview with Vernita Gray, who mm-hmm. was a lesbian activist here in in the city, um, decades ago, uh, and what what to leave in, what to leave out was was a big consideration. I wasn't I wasn't the editor. I was the transcriber. I I put it all in. There and and let let the editors and uh and and filmmakers make the final decisions as to what they wanted uh wanted to keep or not keep but that that felt to me like like a decision that that i i couldn't make um and that it was important um because she was she was such a brilliant woman uh that it was important to to capture as much of her nuance and personality through her words as possible in the transcription. Mm. So, anyways, mm-hmm. um, we could we could go on about that for for hours and hours here. But uh, so I wanted to go back to these four points. Uh, preparation right. um, was being close to the subject uh, helpful or hindrance for you? I think it was helpful, yeah. and I think it was helpful because I felt such a responsibility to get this right. Yeah. Um, it definitely made it more emotionally taxing. Indeed. I mean, just on a like personal level, my nightmares mm-hmm. came back after after years of my nightmares about that week having gone away. Wow. Um, it was a very difficult emotional work, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I would do another project soon that was quite so close to me. Yeah. yeah. But I do think it made it as strong, like why it's as strong as it is. Okay. Um, number two, interviewing. Is there a synergy beta- between um, real-time event journalism and rendering um, an oral history? So, if 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 that makes if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think there are similarities and there's differences between that kind of interviewing. Uh huh. Um, what What's interesting is if two or three of the characters I, I interviewed the day after. So August 13th, 2017, I still okay. had those tapes. And some I, and then some of the same people I interviewed when I was writing the book in 2021, 2022. Um, and they definitely remember things differently. And mm-hmm. in some way, I mean, I think ideally you would have both because mm-hmm. sometimes you get the immediacy of it, but there's also this sense of sometimes having to like, process things and then being able to look at them more clearly yeah. so I think in an ideal world you would have both but also just recognizing like where a person's coming from especially yeah. when it has to do with traumatic memories when often memories can be even fuzzier and I, I I've been through combat and riots and a thousand different uh uh mm. protests and, and by by the way they they never get easier <laughs> they never you, you never you never gain yeah. gain any real clarity of oh I'll, I'll do it better the next time they're all unique and they're all confusing and emotional and erratic and chaotic let me let me just go on here uh number three preservation there's an audiobook 
of 24 hours in Charlottesville. Do we hear the actual voices uh, from the print version? No. And so that is something that we talked a lot about. And honestly, we're still talking about uh-huh. where those tapes all go. Um, yeah, the audiobook yeah. is just an audiobook narrator uh, reading the book yeah, yeah. front to back. Um, but I do have all these tapes and I have hours and hours and hours of stuff that was never put in the book. Yeah. Um, but part of my process was telling folks that the tapes would not be released. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That that was the original goal. That it was just going to be the book. And so I, and I said, like, if you ever, if you say anything in this interview that you don't want that as soon as if it comes out wrong or if you just say it and then you're like, oh, I don't want the whole world to know that. Let me know and we can put that back off the record. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so there is a lot of back and forth on the record and off the record in the tapes. Um, there's a lot of crying and and emotion mm-hmm. and yeah. um, so if I ever was to do anything with any of those, I would need explicit permission and consent yeah. from those folks that at this stage I haven't pursued. But because you're using their words, uh, and, and this this feeds to, to number four here from um, uh, oralhistory.org, access. Because because you're writing a, uh, a historic record, you have to maintain uh, an archive of that, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, when you say have to, I would say... Well, Yes, that is my imperative as a as a journalist, yeah. but also as a historian. I mean, I was a history major undergrad. I love yeah. history. I like think I do in many ways identify as a historian. And these are incredibly important mm-hmm, archives mm-hmm. in the public record. So I, I'm a novelist. Uh, I, I also wrote jur- a journalistic piece about the downing of Malaysian Flight 17 mm. um, and a war memoir um, I just completed a, uh, a history of, of our storytelling culture. One notable absence in every resource that I looked at in how-tos on writing oral history is the actual storytelling and drama part of it. Mm. That, that there, and, and that is such an important and powerful part of, of this book. Talk about how how you built the the necessary tension, uh, mm. the storytelling, the, using using those those tried and true storytelling techniques uh, of of building tension and 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 relaxation and and peak uh, climax and all that 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 really comes across really strongly in this book. Or maybe I'm just overthinking it, and that's. That's just a just a, a a natural part of of this story. I think both are true. I think okay. this was such a clear story, but I think you also, even in choosing your beginning point and your midpoint and your end point, I mean, I could have started the book years earlier yeah. in terms of the the time frame. Yeah. And I also made a very specific choice to cut it off when I did. And one of the criticisms I've gotten just in the last, you know, a couple of days since the book came out is that, oh, you should have talked about the months afterward and the aftermath. And and so part of it was putting bounds around the scope that I could do. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't cover everything. But I do think there are some very basic storytelling tactics mm-hmm. like that rising action and kind of almost cliffhangers at the end of the yeah. chapters and 
like we were talking about earlier, kind of that idea of like, what did you know when? And I think the benefit of hindsight is that we do know what happens. Mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. only that, but the reader knows what happens for the most part. Um, I'm not trying to create a surprise ending. I mean, we all basically know the story. And so I was able to put in a lot of almost foreshadowing. Time after time, there's a lot of anticipation, both both in the narrative, but but I was and 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 again, I knew at least probably probably more than than a lot of people knew about this story. But there was there was that that anticipation of uh, oh, what's coming next mm-hmm. and and that was that was fully the strength of of the way you put together these real words of 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 people thank you yeah. yeah i mean i i appreciate that and i think that was intentional um yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yet also it's what genuinely happened and i think there yes. was this sense of like a, there's a quote in the book that resonated with me as, as just someone who was living in town of like, it was like a snowball rolling down a hill and you just like couldn't stop it. And I think, you know, I made the specific decision to start the book on the first yeah. page with this kind of setup where, you know, someone said it was like a storm, like it was forecasted in the future and you knew it was coming. And then someone else says it was like lightning cracking, like with the right, the air right before lightning cracked. Someone else said it was like the snowball rolling down the hill. And then, then the local newspaper said it rained and the skies cleared by the afternoon. And so by just by starting there, the, that's all things that people said to me. But You're by right. starting there, um, it kind of captured this. It almost takes on this biblical size. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, it kind of was. I mean, this was. Yeah. It was wild to live through this in town. And still, I mean, it's. It is very raw still in Charlottesville. You you don't give uh, give voice to the neo Nazi and white supremacist groups on the other side, uh, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, but but that was a conscious decision, right? Or did you it reach was. out to Richard Spencer or nope. Jason Kessler or anyone? Nope. Okay. No, nope. and I will say I, I've spoken to them before. I mean, mm-hmm. in the course of my news reporting, um, right, right. I've known Jason Kessler for many years, but platforming white supremacists and platforming neo-nazis yeah can often help them so providing them propaganda providing them uh, more uh, of a recruiting tool uh, making yeah. them just feel important and special to be asked um and and a lot of their words i mean i still i quote from them still extensively in the book i mean yeah. from depositions and court cases and um their words that have been captured on video and you know, there's absolutely ways that their story can be told without having to do a fresh interview with them. In in chapter five, you you employ it this way, which I I, I found amazing. Uh, I I was mm. I was floored by this. Some of their chants, you um, giving this rising tension tension a, a darkly lyrical texture, um, mm. which which was such an interesting vehicle. Does that become an allegory? to the marcher's perspective and motivation because it has this it has this rhythm throughout the book where where you 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 keep feeding us these lines and and i have to say um it it gives a sense or or the the story gives gives us a sense that these aren't people 
their cause is a thing, a rabid dog, uh, mm. a monster, a toxic cloud. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I think they're from a writing perspective, I had this question of how I, I, I had quotes from people, some that were direct quotes, but remembering what was happening in the moment. Yeah. And then this other set of quotes that were chants caught on video recorded at the time that were yeah. a lot like things people were saying at the exact moment. And just mm-hmm. like from a formatting perspective, had to figure mm-hmm. out like which to put in italics and, and things like that. But I think that also contributes to the like feeling like you're in the moment of it all when you're reading. Standing up to hate, and and I, I got this very much from the voices in in the book. Standing up to hate is is a line, and you have to be on that line, right? Uh, or those hate groups get to define the line. I think there's a big question of when to ignore them and hope it'll go away, yeah. and not give them like not play into it. And yeah. I think there's there was a there's a a different sense in 2017 in Charlottesville before this than there even is now. Mm-hmm. But it's the kind of thing about a little kid giving a temp- temper tantrum. If you ignore it, maybe it'll stop or they'll go away. Like don't give them the the, the attention they want. Right. Um, but the problem is that's, that's not actually the best way to confront neo-Nazis. Letting them go and march and rally unimpeded is giving them more of a platform and giving them more of an ability to spread that hate yeah yeah uh bill Ayers is a is a dear dear friend we had him when i when i was doing the uh the radio show with carrie kendall uh he was on uh, a number of times but he came on to to speak about his his last book on education and it was very much and 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 we were on by the way but i i'm somewhere left of mahatma gandhi but uh but the, the station we, we were on was was very much oriented towards the right. And so we had, we were doing an art show so we could speak to, to all sides. And, and, and Bill, you know, is, is a lightning rod, particularly for the right uh, and, and uh, be, because of his politics and his history. I asked him to speak to, to both sides. Because he kept saying, he kept saying, well, the right does this, the right does that. And I said, you know, we, we have listeners from both sides of the aisle speak to all of them and impart in them the wisdom of, of the words that you put in, in this book. Mm. How does this book reach the other side or, or does it? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that this book is necessarily going to reach like the the neo-Nazis other side. Um, and that was not my goal. Um, okay. But but I do think that there is there have already been more conservative, more traditional folks, mm-hmm. more pe- folks who are more who are just as, for example, scared of Antifa as they are of yeah, the, yeah. the alt-right. Yeah. Um, who who have read the book and I think who have responded to it because it's just people's words. It's not editorializing. It's not me making an argument. I mean, I'm a journalist. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. you know, trying to to make a take a take a position on individual choices or actions or yeah, indeed. Um, and so I think due to the format of the book, it's also become more accessible for people. And I mean, there there's there were a couple of people that I interviewed. Um, who were not happy with 
the final product and, for example, the calling out of the police as much as I did. But they couldn't be upset really about what I published about them because it's just their own words. So mm-hmm. there's not a lot they can say. Speaking of the police, the uh, the July 8th Unite the Right rally, the, the tear gassing of counter protesters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I've been in these situations. I've documented these situations in the past. It, 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 there's always a means of of agitation and delegitimization of uh, by police, especially against the left and progressives. I, I don't know if it's a purposeful siding with the racists, but but it does become a valuation of the perceived place uh, of progressivism in in the hierarchy of society, right? Mm. Yes. And I think something that we saw over and over again is that in Charlottesville specifically, is that the voices of the activists and Mm anti-racists and community members who genuinely had the best intelligence on what was going to happen because they were the ones having these conversations who had infiltrated the discord boards, who were clued into exactly what the white nationalists were planning. For the most part, these people were less educated were less conventionally Mm -hmm. uh, powerful and so and and, i mean explicitly many of them were black women and queer black women Mm -hmm. and so there was they were not listened to as much as the elected city councilors and university officials and police chief etc etc we got into this kind of toxic feedback loop in Charlottesville where the very people being ignored were the people who had the most information that could have prevented tragedy. That from, from the police perspective, do you feel that the police showed support for the right? Were they reticent for perceived backlash or, or press negative press afterwards, or did they simply not take the threat by one side seriously either way is bad right yeah the the, the, on 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 one hand and and i'm not sure that i know that i can say or anyone necessarily can say which it is or if it or if that it's one answer across the board or if it was different for each individual officer yeah but either they were so either they were siding with the white nationalists and wanted to prevent them or, or uh, preserve their ability to speak, and yeah. that's horrific, or the more charitable interpretation would be they were so scared of escalating tensions, they didn't want to start the continuum of violence response, yeah. Yeah. they didn't want gunfire in the middle of Charlottesville, and so they decided in response to just let other violence wreak mm-hmm, havoc in the streets mm-hmm. and have people be injured and someone be killed and it just was like an accidental failure to protect their citizens yeah that's yeah. also not good like <laughs> that's yeah. also bad but, but in the narrative you you cite after action reports that lay the blame at the city's feet in failing to be prepared or even heed the warning and you talk uh, with a number of people, Andrew Baxter and mm-hmm. Brian Moran, the, the the governor of Virginia, who all understood that this was not going to turn out well for anyone. 
There is, yeah. I mean, I think one of the most frustrating things is that there, the, the and this is kind of in the weeds, but there was this this movement to move the physical location yeah. of the rally. There was a yeah. permit issued for the rally to take place in this tiny little park right in downtown Charlottesville, where it was going to be very hard to get people in and out, and with yeah. kind of perfect yeah. conditions for for a brawl to occur, which is where it ended up happening. And the city said, okay, we're going to grant your permit, but only if you take it to this park that's way out of town. Yeah, that yeah. has tons of parking and is like hard to kind of like, it, it just would have been a better place for a, a whole bunch of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there was a federal lawsuit mm -hmm. on, on emergency grounds, on First Amendment grounds um, that ended up saying that the permit had to be granted for the original location. The infuriating part of that to, for many people is that there was a law in the city government and there is precedent in in the justice system that mm -hmm. that only is that good insofar as you're not threatening violence and we knew there was going to be violence but it seems like the police and city managers were the only ones not seeing the signs of of the brewing trouble and then responding on that first night when there was trouble right absolutely yeah yeah, it was it was an object failure of the police yeah. to protect citizens. And the big thing that activists will say in town, which I think is probably true, is that you cannot tell us that if it had been a group of Black Lives Matter activists rioting in the street, that something more wouldn't have been done. Indeed, there, there's so much here, and and I'm I'm trying to move quickly here, but uh, again, it, it's it's the scope of this book is is just astounding. Uh, there are important threads captured here, not captured anywhere else, nor like mm. this from uh, from the Hefe report. That was uh, that was the the official after action report of 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 this, right? Yes, By the, city. the independent yeah. review. Okay, uh, rabbis also removed the the synagogue sacred scrolls for, scrolls for safekeeping outside the downtown area. Rabbi uh, Tom uh, Guthertz. Good hurts. Good yep. hurts. Thank you, uh, Congregation uh, Beth Israel. Uh, we said to ourselves, is there anything in this building uh, that can't be replaced? And then we thought that through, we realized this Holocaust Torah, which is uh, a special scroll that is our synagogue has. I mean, uh, if it couldn't be replaced. So a couple of days before August 12th, uh, we just sort of quietly removed that Torah. I was reminded and, and I spent 20 years uh, going in and out of Sarajevo, um, in, including during the siege. I was reminded of the Sarajevo Haggadah in 1941 mm. on the eve of of the Nazi occupation of the city. They spirited the the Haggadah to a little farm uh, in the in the mountains outside of Sarajevo, where it remained for the entire war. Um, that was that that's such a powerful observation and capture mm. on, on your part. Thank you. And it it just speaks to the depth of what happened here. We are talking yeah. about yeah. historic moments. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's so comprehensive that it comes off as, as a bit of a crisis management source book. Mm, that's interesting. 
and what not to do yeah and, and precisely exactly what not to do uh saint paul's church the night before the first violent confrontation uh there's an overflow congregation uh and the reader can feel the mood like the eve before a battle that's uh, this mm. ominous mood at saint paul's episcopal church and then the nazis attacked on august 11 where were the police that night so it's a good question. Um, there were a couple a couple of different individuals mm-hmm. said that they saw a certain like individual officers kind of milling around and potentially even escorting some of the white nationalists around. The argument is that from from the university and from the police departments is that they had staffed up so heavily the next day and uh-huh. were going to ask their officers to work 18 hour shifts that they gave most of them the night before off so that they could sleep and then prepare for the next day where that and and that they didn't know the torch march was going to happen yeah where that breaks down is that jason kessler called 911 at Uh 5 p.m on friday afternoon and said hey we're gonna have a march tonight wanted to give you a heads up so you can't pretend that you didn't know had there been a show of force that night uh, by authorities, would they have come back on the 12th, you think? Or think come back counter- as aggressively? The, the, yeah, the, the, the counterfactual is hard to yeah, is, is yeah. hard to say, but yeah. but I, what I will say is that pe- yeah. pe- both the white nationalists and the activists left Friday night thinking, okay, they're completely emboldened, the white nationalists are completely mm-hmm. emboldened, tomorrow is going to be even worse than we expected, and someone's going to get killed tomorrow. There were people the night before, on August 11th, that were saying goodbye and making plans should something happen to them. Deciding what family members should take their kids, leaving their homes, going to safe houses. Yeah. Also police officers telling their wives allegedly, this might be it. We might be gone tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. One side was strapped for battle. And it's, I mean, arguably both, both were at, at that point. But I think that's where, and that gets back to kind of why I wanted to do this project to begin with is that, there's this national kind of, I don't know, retelling of this story, which yeah, is, yeah, it was crazy. It was this beautiful summer Saturday. And then like all of a sudden the Nazis came and we didn't know what was happening. And oh my gosh, Charlottesville, we just were shocked the nation. Charlottesville mm-hmm. shocked the nation. But you, you, we knew you, this you, was coming for months. But you, you, you also talk about uh, Christine uh, Zakos, mm-hmm. uh, the Charlottesville city councilor. Uh, and what she w- what she w- had been up against for for a year pre- uh, preceding the riot. Yeah, her and then also the the vice mayor West Bellamy, mm-hmm. um, even the mayor who who was Jewish. They were watching their houses. They were watching their children. Mm-hmm. They were informing that they were watching their their children and and their houses. And yeah, they would some- call. They would the the. Someone would call Chris and Sakis and say, oh, we know that you went to bed at nine o'clock last night. That's when your that's when your light turned out, just so that she would know they were watching her house. This book is also a reminder of of the fact that three people, not one person died that day. Mm. Um, Heather Heyer was was the most is the most ubiquitous, I I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. She becomes this unwitting uh, and unwilling martyr. Mm-hmm. And and you 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 kind of lay out that she was she was reluctant to to get involved, but something drove her to be in that place at that moment. 
she felt like it was the right thing to do by all accounts. She she was not necessarily planning on going, but mm-hmm. once she saw the torch march on Friday night, she said, no, I have to be there. This is my community. You you give the impression that, that she was out to defend her town. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she had, that was kind of who she was. I mean, it's I've gotten to know her mother very well in the years since, and... Mm-hmm. Susan, her mother, always says, you know, it's not like Heather was an angel. Everyone always says, oh, like Heather was a martyred angel. And like, no, she was going out there to like help. She was a real person. She was a real human being. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she she went out to protect her town and to stand up for what she thought was right. Mm -hmm. Um, And she paid the ultimate price. You um, you didn't carry her story through um, through through much of the the narrative you, you sort of sort of begin with her the night before was was that just was there was there a lack of memory about her or it was it strictly just using as much of of a person's own words to tell the story and and then she comes into this and um talk talk about how you how you chose and where you chose to place Heather in the story. In a lot of ways, she is a main character and yet she's the one person I couldn't talk to. And I think a lot about, I mean, I think a lot about her and I think we would have gotten along. I think we would have been friendly. I think, um, you know, I, I had lunch with her mom, the, the day after the book launch a couple of days ago with my own mom and we were all just kind of chatting and and kind of talking about where Heather would be now and if she'd been if she'd lived and been able to tell her story for the book what that would look like wow. um we don't know yeah um yeah. she didn't keep a journal uh, at least that summer but she um, she sort of arises in in the narrative the same way that she arises in in the national conscience uh where she's she's in the background in one moment and in the next moment tragically she's on everybody's lips she was not a leader of this movement and she yeah. would be the first yeah. person to say that that yeah. that there were people of color who were leading this movement she was yeah. not a leader she was just part of the crowd and happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and happened to be the one that was killed um but it's not like she was a major figure and we have all this reporting about her before this like yeah. she just kind of showed up that day you know i found it interesting this this comment by a um a virginia state uh, police trooper to a colleague and and i'd love to i'd love to know where where you you managed to find this quote what are they like military they're more armed than we are yes so i i believe and i i would want to double check the citations in the book but i believe that exact quote was captured on a body camera um during the day of that then was turned over to the independent commission run by tim hafey um, and then quoted in the Hafey report, um, mm-hmm. which I quote from throughout the book. These are people that uh, that Charlie Kirk and Dennis Prager and Jack Posobiec and Tommy Tuberville uh, and others give veiled cover to, right? Is is mm-hmm. that where we are as a as a nation that we're that that people in the quote unquote mainstream media and in in political and positions of political leadership are 
defending Nazis? You don't have to answer that. Uh, we could, I mean, we, forget we, everyone you just no, but but yeah. I mean, forget everyone that you just mentioned, like the president of the United States. I mean, yeah, yeah. I was I was I was with a group of white nationalists on the one year anniversary of mm-hmm. August twelfth mm-hmm. outside the White House, and they were protesting. And there was like a very sad, measly group of twenty of them. Yeah. And more reporters than even you know, yeah. they they had numbers at that point because there had been such a lack of support then after after Heather's death. And the thing I was struck by then was just how many people were saying, Oh, well, the president is supporting us. I mean, you know, he can't really say it because like the liberal media will get all over him, but like we we know that he's on our side. And you were we there. Were were there were there good people, quote unquote, on the other side who were just just out there to support the the legacy statues and had nothing to do with white supremacy or Nazism, or was that concocted by by the president and the right wing media? That was a myth. That is not true. Mm-hmm. I think earlier in the summer, there mm-hmm. were certainly some very elderly uh, Confederate reenactor types right. who would come down from or come up from North Carolina, especially, and wave their Confederate flags around the statue. Yeah. And would what what we might traditionally call peacefully protest. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, people waving Confederate flags around a Confederate statue is violent. Uh, just by the ethos that they are projecting and that Mm. is promoting violence even if they're not out there hauling off and hitting someone because they have a knee replacement like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is still violence i don't i don't want to go too far in in defending the actions of the police uh there there was there was this that uh that I, i i i think stands on its own the international association of police chiefs after action review um, said that uh, the state police had approximately 600 sworn members to the event, the largest deployment in decades. Uh, my my addition to that would be, uh, because I can editorialize, who did nothing? Mm-hmm. I think that response sort of rings in the 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 thoughts of everyone who will read this. The only two people who were, it was either two or three, but I think it was two, the only group of people that were arrested on August 12th, 2017 in Charlottesville were women who took their tops off on the downtown mall and they were arrested for having their breasts out. Those were the only arrests that day. People were Um, arrested after the fact, but in the moment. So I guess in light of the they're they're more armed than they're they're heavier armed than we are statement by by a VSP um, trooper. Is there a misplaced David and Goliath sympathy here? Uh, and I'm just trying to to reconcile with that meeting that when when Ferguson happened, when when the shooting happened. And and I was very very close to that event. I I was I had friends on the ground there. I was I was talking with people on the on the radio at the time, uh, who who were on the street in Ferguson. That parents had initially gone to the police for for questions and and to to be included in 
in that community conversation, uh, however emotional. And they were met with machine guns, which led inevitably to 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 the riots rather than rather than the respectful engagement those parents were were seeking. I'm really bending over as far back as I can here uh, to try to find some motivation for for the police not interceding more forcefully. I mean, I think that the most charitable interpretation is that the police were scared of escalating the violence even further. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And you know what? That's why we have police who are theoretically trained. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You should be able to still do something. Indeed. If, if they had been proactive, um, things might not have. I mean, if they had been, out. if they had been prepared whatsoever. I mean, one of the stupidest things is that they were supposed to all cross cross sync their radios so that VSP could talk to the Charlottesville police and yeah. vice versa and the county police. They just forgot to do it. And so the radios weren't synced. And so none, no one could talk to each other. They were calling their cell phones yeah. Yeah. in the riot. I mean, it just, I mean, their riot gear at one point was behind a barricade and they couldn't reach it. Like, that's the level of incompetency that we're talking about. Indeed. Uh, What's what's next? Uh, uh, Are are you working on something, something new or? I am. Yeah. So I'm working on two different projects right now. One is actually a novel um, that I've been really enjoying uh, working on that's set in 1965. Um, which has been an interesting period to kind of compare and contrast with this one. Um, And I'm also working on another uh, potential oral history for the future. Nice. Very nice. Uh, A Gambian proverb says, when an elder dies, a library burns to the ground. The new book from Nora News is 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy, a truly historic achievement. Go and get this book. Her website is noranews.com. Thank mm. you. Thank you. Thank you. This was this was powerful and enlightening and wonderful. And I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Great, great luck with the book and well done. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for engaging with it so deeply. I, I really love doing interviews like this where we've this, clearly thought about it. This was right up my wheelhouse and, and I'm Good. I, I've ordered the book and uh if if you're ever in Chicago again, uh, I, I'd love to I'd love to have you sign it. And yeah, I'd we'll, love that. We'll 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 hold that for next time. Yeah. Maybe maybe when you finish that novel, you'll come back and yes, talk about it. Yes, I would love that. Oh, I would love to hear about it. Thank thanks. you so much. Thanks, Nora. And while we're here, a fictional tie-in to the 24 Hours in Charlottesville book from Nora Noose. This appeared on my radar earlier this week. Renegade Press LLC is the brainchild of my good friend Dan Davies. Dan is best known for his acting work, including the hit Ed Gein, the musical. A young publisher, Dan is already finding some great success. And you are, man. We're going to talk about that in a bit. Uh, The latest offering from Renegade Press is Music on the Bones, written by Jody Marriott Barlev and Avi Barlev. If you love political intrigue, romance, and a scheme to smuggle contraband rock and roll into the Soviet Union, and who doesn't, uh, circa 1969, then this book was written for you. 
more than a book, it's become a bit of a movement with a, with a music soundtrack recorded at the famed Abbey Road Studios in London and the voices Katie Cadan, who I met, by the way, and Chris Weaver. Music on the Bones is now available on Amazon. Dan Davies joins me to talk about the project. The website, by the way, is renegadepresspublisher.com. Welcome, man. It's, it's so good to virtually see you again. Oh, this is awesome, Bill. Uh, we're just excited, and it's great to see you as always. You're looking good there, buddy. Thank you. This is one hell of a feather in your cap. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for calling me young. I have been called that since <laughs> I think Ronald Reagan was in office. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm a neophyte. I'm a novice in publishing, but I'm really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with Randy Richardson's book, uh, Havana mm -hmm. Hanover, and Music on the Bones, yeah. Jody Marriott Barlev and Avi Barlev are just amazing people. And Jody is a, uh, an unbelievable creative. And she had been mulling about this idea of crafting this book um, uh, just a number of years ago, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. And she started collecting the X-ray film. So just to kind of give you a little bit of a backstory, in the Soviet Union, um, they used to spear it in uh, rock and roll when it was contraband. The communists didn't like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or the Beach Boys. And uh, they used to actually take X-ray film, X-ray paper that was used, and they could cut it. And then literally with a stylus, they could uh, copy uh, records that were, uh, you know, again, spirited into the country. And then they would cut it and then put a hole in it with a cigarette. And you could use that x-ray as a record. So you get a Beatles song, someone, you know, gets the White Album and, you know, or whatever. And you're able to re recreate these wonderful uh, songs on used x-ray film. And they used to go to the hospitals and buy it all up. And they were kind of wondering. A lot of these people were like uh, medical students or doctors. And they were like, well, OK, you know, we're just, you know, you can have it or you can buy it from, from us. And then they would have a whole underground market of these great rock and roll songs. And Jody and Avi have a bunch of these amazing uh, records that are on the original from the 1960s and 70s, wow. uh, even back to the 1950s. Um, and so she came up with this amazing idea of wrapping uh, a love story and a story of freedom and a story of rock and roll all around this contraband uh, rock form or form of uh, music on these x-ray films and it's called music on the bones for that reason because it's you know broken bones she's got some with a fractured you know rib or femur or you know whatever and uh it's really really cool so we're super excited i think the story idea is brilliant uh not to mention the brilliance of of uh, of etching records on x-ray film yeah. which was is is brilliant that's the that's yeah. sheer genius yeah. um jody by the way for, first of all she's she assisted in the with the rescue and relocation of a wild mustang herd at the white sands missile range out west right yeah jody is pretty amazing jody had a background she's originally from london uh -huh. um and grew up uh in the United States, but was born and bred in, in London. Uh -huh. And uh, she was a model and an actress yeah. and, and worked on all kinds of screenwriter, screenwriter, and then worked with a, a, an organization to save the wild Mustangs and the burros that were out in the West that they were just going to uh, euthanize, going to kill. Um, and tomorrow she's going to change time. 
Yeah, yeah. And so she, they, they got it, they inoculated all the horses and got them into, you know, South Dakota and areas yeah. where they could run free. And they're the original horses that can trace their lineage back to, to the conquistadores. Yeah. So they go back from the, the 15th century. So they're, they're a national treasure and we mm -hmm. need to save them. So Jody was in, uh, integral with that movement and saving those animals. So she's, she's a pistol. That's uh, that's the best wow. way to describe her. And Avi is an oncologist and brilliant and uh, just a good guy all the way around. So, it's so been really how did nice. they how did they come across this story in the first place? So Jody and Avi have a friend. Um, his uh, first name is Roman, and he was a uh, he's from the Soviet Union, from Russia. He's a mm -hmm. doctor, and I think still is a doctor. And he would tell, you know, over vodkas, you know, copious amounts of vodka, he'd tell them stories about his, his time in the Soviet Union. And he, that was one of the stories. He said, we loved rock and roll. We loved Western rock wow. and roll music wow. with a passion. And, but it was contraband. And, you know, you don't want to end up in a gulag because you've got a Rolling Stones, you know, album. So they would sneak it in. And then there was this whole kind of underground network. And it was for them to listen to Western music, be it jazz or rhythm and blues or rock, was just amazing. Mm -hmm. it's, music has such an ethereal, transcendent power. And it was really kind of cool. So it was kind of his talking to them and then Jody as being this wonderful creative wrapped a whole story around it. And the, and the book is music on the bones is amazing. Yeah. I was just intrigued when I, when I saw your post, uh, it was the first time that I came across. So how did you meet Jody or how did she come across renegade press? Okay. So I've known Jody and Avi for, oh gosh, she's um, uh, maybe 20 years almost. Okay. Okay. And uh, Jody and Avi were the executive producers on a film we did called West of Thunder, which I'm, I'm was yeah. on Hulu, and yeah. I'm really proud of that film. And we shot that in South Dakota and had a lot of the wild horses actually that she was part parcel uh, right. part of the, right. the, the team that saved those horses, and we shot it on the Oglala uh, Lakota Indian lands in Pine Ridge and. Mm -hmm. Wisconsin. It's beautiful and, out there. I've been yeah, there. Yeah, and Agua Dolce, California as well. And it was it was really, it's a it's spiritual Western, and I'm very, very proud of it. And uh, that's kind of how we, we started this uh, working relationship. Mm -hmm. And, we, you know, when you're when you're creative, and you can't turn that creative brain off. Mm -hmm. And she's always crafting these great, you know, stories and screenplays and, and films. And she's just, she's amazing. And in yeah. the, what was really cool, what I try to do at Renegade Press is with my authors, it's like, how do you want to add a compendium piece? Yeah. Take this as an intellectual property. How do we branch out? A build out. Other, yeah, as a build out. What do you want to do? You want to create a screenplay, a teleplay? Do you want to, uh, and then Jody with the soundtrack at Abbey Road Studios, which was always a goal of hers, you know, being from London and being a huge, you know, Beatles fan, of course, they did the recording at Abbey Road Studios with a laundry list of British uh, music royalty and uh -huh. Katie Caden and Chris Weaver from The Voice, uh, whose voices are just unreal. It yeah. fit in with the two songs that we released uh, just recently, July 28th, um, What a Wonderful World and uh, Me and Bobby McGee. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are all available on the YouTube channel, which is just Music on the Bones uh, YouTube. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the two videos, it'd be Katie Caden and uh, Chris Weaver.
uh, are the two videos that we have there. So we're trying to build up that subscriber base. But the, did you get a chance to take a listen at all? I talk? have. As a matter of fact, we're we're starting uh, we're starting and finishing this piece with with each of those songs. They're, oh, that's killer. Yeah, they're, they're they're great. And and as I said, uh, I I was uh, I was lucky enough to meet Katie uh, when she was at uh, the radio station WCGO a while back, and she was uh, she's just just a, a talented talented uh, oh, woman. Yeah, yeah, she's a fellow Chicagoan. Yeah, she um, is. And and she's just she's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Chris is a, a good guy too. They're yeah. Just, they're, they're class people. And that's what's the beautiful thing about it. I've been very fortunate, very blessed to hang with people that are just amazing. I just, mm -hmm. I don't suffer fools well anymore. <laughs> you get a certain age and you, uh -huh. you don't want to do that. But yeah, the, the, at the Abbey Road Studios as well, there were some just amazing session people that have worked with, gosh, the zombies and, and Pink Floyd. I mean, it, the list goes on and yeah. on and on and yeah. on. And that was, it was really, really fun. And they, they the behind the scenes videos are part of those YouTube videos are mm -hmm. really kind of interesting. That's the first of, of a number of songs. Yeah, uh, a number gonna of come. it's going to be a full album. Uh -huh. and the album is inspired by the book. Mm -hmm. So it's just a compendium piece uh, to the book. And it's just another way to kind of, you know, market it and get it out there and, and really build it out so yeah. that the, the book becomes the engine to the train with all these other projects that are mm -hmm. branching off from it. There, there are some great themes in music uh, on the bones, which resonate uh, such as censorship and the ultimate futility, authoritative or autocratic governments to stop ideas, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's it's amazing just how uh, fortunate we have it here in the United States. I complain. Everybody does. And that's our yeah. right. Yeah. We're given that right, you know, um, and we're protected in that free speech. But it's it's amazing to think that those rights have been curtailed in, in countries for years yeah. where they were. It was, you know, you'd be imprisoned over that you know literally if you if you were caught with the contraband rock and roll they could throw you in a gulag wow you know and I, that just is just mind-boggling so it's just one of those things again we should never go down that slippery slope of um that uh, like you said autocratic despotic uh tyrannical style of government <laughs> and we should really live and breathe and die for uh free speech and yeah. our freedoms and you would know you were a uh, you were a political science major yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> which, is how, which is how you ended up in acting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, my degrees are in English and political science. And the, the only reason why I chose those two is because I could drink a lot and get good <laughs> grades. And I'd be hung over in my classes and still do halfway decent. And that's uh, that's the truth. I'm, I'm you not, and a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, 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 basically. But no, but it's it's been fun, you know, with with my degrees, too. It's it's kind of having that background. Um, you, I always tell people, get as much education as you can, because that's something that can never take away from you. Yeah. And uh, so but yeah, with this book too, music on the bones with the political science, it's just I, it's just it's an amazing story. It's a good summer read. And I think people are going to enjoy it and then have the, the, the luxury of actually while you're reading the book, you can listen to some amazing songs oh, created yeah. for the book. 
I don't want to gloss over this fact. We we touched upon it a, a, a little bit in Renegade's mission statement. Uh, you say this, that you want Renegade Press to be a one-stop shop for authors uh, looking at branding their books as intellectual properties. Their book becomes the first floor, the foundation of a creative process that includes the creation of an audiobook, screenplay, teleplay, adaptations, pitch deck, and and all that, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's 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 difficult, you know, you're, when you're up against, you know, the, there's the top five publishers have 98% of the books are sold literally through them. There are 35 million books just on Amazon alone that are for sale. But I have uh, to say, I have to say the the key to what what your mission statement implies is is true innovation in yeah. a market that absolutely is starved for innovation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's it. I want to give the authors an opportunity to really stretch their boundaries. Sure. As a matter of fact, with uh, Randy Richardson, um, once all the the, the, the the guilds and the unions and, and get kind of, which I'm, I'm pro-union, um, get their stuff in order, and, yeah. and which I think will be in the next couple of months, yeah. um, you know, writing the screenplays and the adaptations like for Havana mm -hmm. Hangover and all those mm -hmm. great projects that you do, you have to think outside of the box and you have to keep creating and there has to be connective tissue uh, among all those projects. Indeed, we're a, we're a multi-formatted world and you have to think yeah. in those multi-formats. You bet. You bet. Podcasts. We're going to be doing a podcast with Music on the Bones with, a, again, a laundry list of celebrities um, and, and, and rock people and, and music people. So there's going to be a podcast coming out mm -hmm. and then, you know, the, the album and the book and all those these fun things. And I just keep telling my authors that I believe in them. You know, I always say, you know, uh, dream big you know, work big, achieve big. Yeah. And that's literally, if I can do this with, you know, I'm just a few cocktails uh, shy of the uh, intelligence of a drunk rhesus monkey. Um, <laughs> you and me both, brother. You and me both. <laughs> but it's Here, good fun. And it's here, here's to rhesus monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> and I love those little rhesus monkeys. There you go. Um, yeah. So, but no, it's been, it's been amazing. It's been super, super fun. And that's those first two albums, those first two singles are, you know, it's going to be a full fleshed out uh, yeah. album. Um, and we're super, super excited for it and having, you know, Katie and Chris behind it and, yeah. and their fans from The Voice. Yeah. They were fan favorites of 2000, I think, 17 or 18. And I absolutely loved them when I first saw them. I was blown away mm -hmm. by them. And it's just, it's fun. It's been, yeah. it's been awesome. Uh, Dan Davies is the publisher of Renegade Press LLC, renegadepresspublisher.com. The latest from Renegade is Music on the Bones uh, by Jody Marriott Barlev and Avi Barlev. Uh, and it's available at Amazon. We'll post a link in the notes below. Catch the soundtrack on YouTube. You won't be disappointed. It's it's really wonderful. Recorded at the famed Abbey Road Studios in London by the Voices' own Katie Kadan, Chicago's own. How about that? Uh, or the Midwest. So we won't take complete ownership. We'll say Midwest. <laughs> and Chris Weaver, we are going to end with Katie's great rendition of the Janis Joplin's Me and Bobby McGee. Thanks, Dan. This was uh, this was great, man. Again, Bill, you're wonderful. I love you. And, Same uh, back at you, man. It's, Best it's of always luck. A, it's always a pleasure being on all of your shows. And thank you. Buster Flat in Baton Rouge 
waiting for a train I was feeling nearly faded as my jeans, yeah Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained Rode us all the way to New Orleans I pulled my harpoon out my dirty red bandana While Bobby, while Bobby sang the blues, yeah Windshield wiper slapping time I was holding Bobby's hand in mine We sang every song link to all of our guests are in the notes below and if you enjoy this program please feel free to share it and don't forget to click the subscribe button and receive notifications on future programs i'm your host wc turk it was good enough for me and my baby from the kentucky coal mine to the california sun Yeah.